which means that a lot, you know, some of these people might also be acting in good faith. They might truly believe that what they're doing is, is good, is necessary for to save the planet, is necessary for the environment. I mean, I don't think they're all acting in, in bad faith. Um, the problem is that A, uh, even if they're acting in good faith, you know, uh, the, 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 the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as we know. And nowadays we could say that, you know, the road, the road to disastrous uh, outcomes, including environmental outcomes, uh, is paved with green intentions. I'm Thomas Fazzi. I'm a writer and journalist uh, based in Rome. Uh, I write about a number of issues. Uh, I regularly write for uh, um, two magazines, Unheard, which is a British magazine, and The Compact, which is an American magazine. Um, and I've recently also produced a uh, report on uh, so-called carbon farming for um, the uh, MCC Brussels think tank. Um, and um, I guess that's what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, so full disclosure, we're both sort of visiting researchers at MCC, and I'll, we'll talk about that maybe a bit later. Um, but could you tell me, uh, what is the, the situation that brought you to write this report? What's going on with farming and EU policy and all of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if, unless you've been living under a rock for the past uh, few months. From quiet fields to busy city streets, Farmers around the world have launched protests in recent weeks. They're demanding relief from what they say is a crisis. Ali Rogan reports on what's driving these protests and what it means for food supply and climate policies. They come in convoys of tractors, armed with the fruits, bread, even the livestock of their labor. From Italy, to India, farmers are taking to the streets, sometimes facing violence, sometimes causing it, protesting policies they say kill their livelihoods. Agriculture has been on its knees for a long time, and we have reached the end of our rope. In fact, farmers in dozens of countries on six continents have been staging protests since 2021. This year, most protests have been in European countries and India. The grievances vary by country, but there's one common message. Farmers can no longer bear the burden of economic and climate policies. Uh, you will have noticed that um, farmers' protests have uh, uh, swept um, Europe. Uh, a kind of uh, kicked off in Germany uh, in, in December. Uh, but that kind of, uh, you know, really, really rapidly, uh, spread to many, many European countries. Uh, so now we're seeing, uh, very large, um, and ongoing farmers protests in, uh, countries like Spain, Italy, the, the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, and several other countries. Um, and, uh, it's, um. It's, it's understandable why, um, why, why these protests have spread, uh, all over Europe, because even though, um, in Germany, they were, you know, the protests were triggered by, uh, a proposal or decision by the German government, uh, i.e. to scrap the, the diesel subsidies for farmers, 
and uh, to uh, essentially raise taxes uh, for farmers. Um, many of these policies uh, aren't actually uh, you know, the, the brainchild of national governments. A lot of them are simply, um, uh, you know, the, the drive for these policies is coming from the European Union, uh, which is why we're seeing similar policies being rolled out all across uh, Europe. So, uh, you know, farmers uh, across Europe have a, a common enemy, uh, which is uh, the, uh, the European Union. And, um, and it, it's important to understand, uh, what's going on because as usual, um, the, the, the mainstream media, the legacy media hasn't done a very good job of explaining why, uh, these farmers are protesting. Um, the general kind of, uh, uh gist seems to be that they're protesting for the right to, uh, uh, to continue, uh, polluting, uh, they just, they just want to pollute, you know, they're just dirty old farmers who just want to keep, you know, burning diesel and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, you know, throwing pesticides into the soil. Um, that's, that's not what's going on at all. Um, these farmers are literally fighting for their, their lives. Um, uh, we're at a crossroads in, in Europe where farming, traditional farming, uh, small and medium sized farming, uh, are really, at, you know, under threat of extinction, um, uh, to the benefit of a completely different kind of, uh, farming model, which is the big agribusiness, uh, industrial, uh, uh, farming model, which, uh, is what the EU is pushing and has been pushing for uh, a very long time. Um, so this is what is, uh, it is at stake here. Um, farmers, uh, have felt for a very long time, small farmers, especially have felt for a very long time that the system, uh, is rigged against them and they're right. Uh, uh, a lot of, you know, I mean, farmers incomes have been declining for a very, very long time. Uh, farmers have been struggling, uh, to get by for a very, very long time, uh, as a result of, uh, essentially, you know, how to, how, you know, what the rules of the game are. Uh, so, you know, they've been subjected to, uh, all sorts of, uh, for example, um, unfair trade practices, uh, unfair, unfair free trade practices, whereby European farmers, uh, are subject to, uh, you know, increasingly restrictive, uh, regulations in terms of, uh, uh, which in themselves, you know, might even be considered uh, positive when, when we think of, for example. Uh, you know, labor rights, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and so on, and, and even environmental, uh, regulations. Uh, the problem is that, um, foreign, uh, foreign producers, uh, that are part of free trade deals, uh, with the European Union are not subjected to these same regulations. So there you have a very clear example of an unfair trade practice, uh, that has, you know, placed a lot of pressure on European, uh, farmers. In recent years, in fact, uh, decades, you know, these are issues that farmers have been painted about for a very, very, um, long, long time. Um, so, and now we're seeing a new wave of regulation that really risks being the proverbial, uh, straw that breaks the camel's back, or in this case, the farmer's back. Um, because, uh, and, and, you know, and this is why, you know, we're seeing all these protests now, you know, why, you know, 
one may ask, why are farmers protesting now if these problems have been ongoing for a very long time? Because it really is the final straw. Uh, you know, on top of uh, uh, on top of all the problems that they've had to face in recent years due to these, uh, uh, you know, uh, free trade practices. Now they're also expected to essentially uh, uh, you know, shoulder the uh, the so-called green transition. Um, uh, and what you know what that means for a lot of farmers is going out of business um and the eu is quite you know is is even quite open about the fact that this is their you know end game uh that that they're openly saying that um you know for the the, the land the farm the land that's currently used for uh, you know to grow uh, crops um or for pasture has to be transformed into uh, something else, land that's used to essentially, um, you know, store carbon. Utopia by Thomas More, published in 1516. Page 21. What is that? quoth the cardinal. Forsooth, my lord, quoth I, your sheep that were wont to be so meek and tame and so small eaters now, as I hear say, be become so great devourers and so wild that they eat up and swallow down the very men themselves. They consume, destroy, and devour whole fields, houses, and cities. For look in what parts of the realm doth grow the finest and therefore dearest wool, where noblemen and gentlemen, yea, and certain abbots, holy men no doubt, not contenting themselves with the yearly revenues and profits that were wont to grow to their forefathers and predecessors of their lands, nor being content that they live in rest and pleasure, nothing profiting, much annoying the wheel public, leave no ground for tillage. They enclose all into pastures, they throw down houses, they pluck down towns, and leave nothing standing but only the church to be made a sheep house. And as though you lost no small quantity of ground by forests, chases, lands, and parks, those good holy men turn all dwelling places and all glebe land into desolation and wilderness. Therefore, that one covetous and insatiable cormorant and very plague of its native country may compass about and enclose many thousand acres of ground together within one pale or hedge, the husbandmen by thrust out of their own, or else either by coven and fraud, or by violent oppression, they be put besides it, or by wrongs and injuries they be so wearied that they be compelled to sell all. By one means, therefore, or by other, either by hook or crook, they must needs depart away. And this, you know, gets us to the, uh, um, the issue that we're, we're discussing today, so-called carbon, uh, farming. Um, so the idea, of course, the basic idea, uh, which, you know, international institutions have been discussing, uh, increasingly over the past few years, I mean, it's agriculture has, uh, for a long time was kind of left out of the whole, uh, of the whole climate mitigation. Um, policies. So if we look at the Kyoto Protocol and similar protocols, and uh, the, the focus wasn't really on uh, farming. It was mostly, of course, on uh, you know, industrial uh, uh, emissions, uh, energy-intensive uh, uh, industries, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, that has kind of changed in recent years. We've seen a growing focus on uh, agriculture as a you know, climate um, uh, as a climate problem in the sense that, you know, agriculture is in fact, uh, uh one of the, you know, the, the second largest, uh, you know, emission, you know, greenhouse gas, uh, uh, emitting sectors, um, in the world, mostly in the form of non CO2, uh, 
uh, emissions, so you know, methane and um, things of, of that kind. Um, and so it makes sense that in this kind of you know a, a, a surging drive towards net zero, it was only a matter of time before you know net zero advocates starting uh, started uh, you know setting their, 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 their eyes on agriculture. And uh, so, so that's where we're at now. Uh, and the EU, European Union is at the forefront of this, uh, of this paradigm shift, which essentially, uh, you know, is all about, you know, now, now all the talk is how do we reduce uh, agricultural emissions? So that's the big talk at the international level, not just in, in the EU. Um, the problem is that it's, uh, it's, there's not, the, you know, with, with current technologies, there's not many ways in which you can actually uh, reduce emissions uh, significantly in the agricultural sector without sacrificing, uh, you know, output, basically. Now, you know, it's not like there are, you know, techniques available which can rat, you know, drastically uh, cause uh, emissions uh, in agriculture to fall. Uh, they're simply, they simply aren't, uh, which is why policymakers are increasingly kind of, you know, taking into consideration a, um, a much more drastic alternative, which is, well, if we can't reduce um, emissions from agricultural activities, then maybe we should start reducing agricultural activities altogether, which is essentially uh, what carbon farming is all about. The idea is that uh, land that's currently used for agriculture should be uh, set aside and uh, be transformed into what they call a carbon sink. Um, and, you know, the idea is, 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 is pretty straightforward. I mean, we know that soil and plants, just like the ocean, uh, they, they, you know, they capture carbon from the atmosphere and they have the ability to store it. Uh, for very you know for a very long time, uh, essentially removing uh, CO two from the atmosphere. So, in the drive towards net zero, uh, it's not surprising that you know uh, parallel to the drive to reducing emissions, we're also seeing a increased drive towards uh, removing emissions. Uh, um, and in fact, we you know we've also seen a growing interest in uh, and and research into uh, so-called carbon um, carbon capture and storing technologies, which are, you know, actual um, uh, machines that, you know, would suck CO2 out of the, uh, out of the atmosphere and store it. But we're very far off from developing um, any viable uh, uh, car, you know, artificial carbon capture um, technology. So the alternative is the uh, the natural carbon storing, uh, carbon capture and storing technologies, which is, uh, as I said, uh, as, you know, alongside the ocean, the soil and the plants. Hence the idea. Well, well, why don't we, uh, you know, go to farmers and, and tell them, look, um, your you know your current job is too, uh, you know, you pollute too much, you you produce too many greenhouse gas emissions. So we're going to give you a new job. We're going to transform you into a land manager. Uh, so you're not going to grow food or, uh, or, or crops uh, anymore. Uh, you're not going to raise uh, cattle or whatever anymore. 
you're simply gonna, you know, you you use your land to uh, to um, to grow grass or forests uh, or whatever, and uh, uh, you know that's gonna that's gonna be your new job. Um, this is the idea behind carbon farming. It seems quite logical. So why why wouldn't it? So if you take these polluting lands and turn them into carbon sinks. Surely that makes sense. So what's what's wrong with this policy? Why won't it work? Well, there are a number of problems. Um, first and foremost, the fact that um, we actually need the food that's produced by farmers. I'd say that's a very basic point. Um, you know, um, these are not dispendable. Uh, set. It's not agriculture is not exactly a uh, an expendable sector. Uh, it's it's a it's a sector which provides us uh, the food that we need uh, to survive. So uh, uh, this in itself uh, means that it merits a completely different treatment from other sectors and other industries. Uh, so you have to you you have to ask yourself uh, when we're talking about literally uh, reducing. Uh, agricultural production and agri agricultural output, what uh, are the potential consequences in terms of um, food security, in terms of food production, in terms of food prices? These are not, you know, secondary questions. These are not secondary issues. Uh, and it's, you know, by definition, carbon farming has an impact on, agri you know, on agricultural output. Uh, and it, 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 it does raise a very serious threat of, uh, of food security. I mean, if you're putting, uh, potentially hundreds of thousands, uh, if not millions of Europeans for uh, small farmers, um, out of business, that's going to have very serious repercussions, of course, on food production, on food prices, uh, at a time when not just Europe, but the entire world is already facing, uh, serious problems of food inflation. Uh, due to you know rising energy costs and falling production and uh, uh, disrupted supply chains and so on and so forth, so all the problems that we've been witnessing, you know, first with the you know pandemic and then uh, with the with the Ukraine war. Uh, so, and, and we know from uh, countries that have more developed agricultural carbon markets than us. Uh, uh, not there aren't that many, but for example, you know, countries like Australia and New Zealand um, have quite well-developed um, uh, agricultural carbon markets. And uh, you know, where we see uh, we have people there already raising the issue of the fact that hundreds of thousands of hectares of land that, you, that, that were, used to be used for uh, uh, growing food and raising cattle are now uh, being uh, you know, bought up. And transformed into forests, uh, so that might be nice for you know for, for the eye. For the eye, uh, of course, who doesn't like you know lush green forests? Uh, but it becomes a problem when uh, the end result is that you find yourself being able to produce uh, less food, uh, be becoming more reliant on food imports, uh, for example, uh, which in themselves are very polluting. So uh, because they have to travel halfway around the world to get to you. So you can already see that um, that there are a number of uh, you know uh, very problematic aspects with the very with the idea itself of um, of reducing uh, agricultural land. 
Then there's another problem. And that's the fact that who, uh, these measures don't affect all farmers in the same way. Uh, they tend to affect uh, small and medium-sized farmers much more than they affect big farmers, big uh, agribusiness enterprises. Uh, because these uh, carbon farming techniques uh, are, A, very costly, um, so there already exist uh, different, you know, various kind of private um, uh, certification techniques. Uh, so you have private companies that you can call and say, hey, can you come and certify that, you know, my land has become a carbon sink? Can you certify how much carbon I'm capturing and storing? There are already companies that do this, um, but the, um, the, these, um, these processes are very costly. Uh, they can run into the, you know, hundreds of thousands of euros uh, over the course of just, uh, you know, five years. So uh, the costs are very, uh, very high uh, and prohibitive, obviously, for small farmers. Um, and then there's the question of all the administrative kind of technical burden that these, uh, that these policies require. The dangers of carbon farming. An Unholy Alliance Between Finance and Environmentalism by Thomas Fotze, page 12. There are also powerful financial interests that stand to benefit from the expansion of carbon farming. Banks expect to rake in billions in trading revenues from the carbon offset market. The huge surge in carbon trading activity that is expected to come from increasing regulation will create many opportunities for financial institutions, as one industry report put it. Ultimately, it is these powerful corporations and financial institutions that are largely driving the EU's carbon removal agenda, and we can rest assured that they don't have the interests of small farmers in mind. It's important to acknowledge that, as it is, under the common agricultural policy, small farms already face a high relative administrative burden. Many do not receive subsidies because of their small size. The result is that the distribution of CAP funds is highly concentrated. 20% of beneficiaries receive 80% of total farm income payments. The CAP and its subsidies per hectare have already led to an increase in farm size, greater concentration of land, and the disappearance of small and medium family farms across Europe. As one 2022 European Parliament report noted, over the years structural change has led to a sharp decline in the number of farms, a consolidation of farmland, and an increase in average farm size. The EU's smallest farms have experienced the strongest decline compared to other farm sizes. This consolidation process, which sees the growth of the largest farms and their farmland, is occurring nearly all over the EU. Indeed, several studies show that Europe is not exempt from the global land-grabbing phenomenon. As one 2015 study, commissioned by the European Parliament's Committee on Agricultural and Rural Development stated, there is significant, albeit partial, evidence that farmland grabbing is underway in the EU today, as measured by the degree of foreign ownership of land, the capturing of control over extended tracts of land, and the irregularities that have accompanied various land transactions. The report further noted that one of the features of this phenomenon has been the growing involvement in farmland acquisition of financial investors not traditionally involved in the agricultural sector, usually for purely speculative purposes banking groups, investment funds, individual traders, and private equity companies. The report already acknowledged, almost a decade ago, that it is often precisely in the conversion of farmland from agricultural to non-agricultural use that the largest returns can be made, 
a practice termed land artificialization. One of the driving forces behind this trend has been the rise of energy crops, that is, crops grown solely for renewable bioenergy production, not for food, and the resulting economic revaluation of farmland, yet another unintended consequence of the EU's decarbonization agenda. This process has been called green grabbing, that is, instances where green credentials are called upon to justify appropriations of land. So when you become a, 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 a la, what they call a land manager, this means that you, um, you have to implement the uh, very, very sophisticated uh, techniques and to actually, because you, you got to quantify how much, how much, uh, uh, how many, how much greenhouse uh, gas emissions uh, you are not emitting anymore. And then you have to quantify how, how much CO2 you're actually storing on your land. And this is, you know, this is, uh, the technologies required to do that, uh, are still in the, you know, right, still in quite an infant stage. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, uh, uh also you know, even their reliability is questionable and we can come to that. Uh, but the problem is that even assuming that these technologies are actually able to perfectly quantify, uh, how much carbon, you know, is stored on your land, which is debatable. Uh, this requires for, you know, farmers or land managers to, uh, uh, you know, uh, insert a, a very a huge number of data of of inputs into uh, into these systems, uh, and, and these are highly technocratic systems. So uh, these are the 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 the, the burden, even simply the technical burdens that 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 that, that these um, that the becoming a carbon farmer. Uh, entails are very prohibitive for small uh, farmers. So the most likely result of these policies, which we are already seeing, in fact, you know, which is why these farmers are protesting, is that a lot of small farmers will uh, essentially um, be, um, uh, you know, be be bankrupt and be forced to uh, to to exit. They'll be squeezed out of the market uh, to the benefit of the big, the big landowners and the big. Uh, industrial farming um, enterprises, uh, and here we have another paradox. Uh, in so far as we're presented, these you know these are supposed to be green, sustainable policies, but the end result is that you end up destroying the small farming model, which uh, tends to tends to have a much smaller uh, environmental and ecological footprint than big. Uh, you know, hyper-industrialized farms, uh, and various studies have also shown that on a you know per hectare basis, the small farms also have lower emissions than very large farms. Uh, so it seems somewhat paradoxical that in the drive to reduce emissions and to uh, promote a more green, sustainable economy, you end up squeezing out of the market uh, the, the small farmers, the medium farmers, that are the ones that in fact uh, have. Um, the uh, the smallest environmental impact as it is to the benefit of the, the you know the um, the large uh, corporate uh, farms. So it seems like a basic case of regulatory capture. You know, people often wonder why do companies woke wash? Why do companies um, campaign for things that seem you know leftist? Uh, and the answer is because they can afford to. 
um, deal with the regulations and they'll often push for really stringent regulations, knowing that their competitors can't keep up. Is that kind of what's happening here? Is that too cynical a reading? No, uh, I don't think it is at all. Um, I think that's uh, definitely one part of the story. Uh, and in fact, I think it's no coincidence that we see that kind of big, big ag, big agro, uh, as they call it. Uh, so the big um, uh, agri-food uh, corporate enterprises are very much in favor of carbon farming. Why is that? Because they care more about the environment than small farmers. Uh, that seems unlikely considering that they're much bigger polluters. Um, uh, the reason is that, um, well, first of all, they know that they can shoulder costs. So if you are, you know, a big, a big agri-food corporation, you can definitely shoulder the extra costs. You can shoulder these, you know, a hundred plus thousand, uh, euros that are needed to implement these techniques. For example, that's not a big cost for you while it, it's a huge, uh, cost for small farmers. Um, a, and once you've done that, if you're. You know, if you own a lot of land, um, what what these policies will create is a situation where the price of land will revaluate. So these policies tend to increase the prices of land. So when you own a lot of land, you're just profiting from the fact that there are policies that make uh, that that push land prices up. Uh, and this goes also for financial speculators. Uh, this is a problem that we already uh, we already see in Europe. So we've seen kind of non-productive uh, sectors of the economy, such as finance, increasingly coming into uh, well, coming into the land-owning business. Uh, so there's you know more and more land over the years in Europe has been bought by big financial uh, corporations, uh, big uh, investment banks because land. Is uh, is valuable uh, in itself. It's a very uh, it's it's a very valuable asset, uh, and it becomes even more of an asset when essentially what these uh, policies do is create a situation where land has value. You know, for even when it has no when no productive activities are, are done on it. Um, so you can see the interest when you're a big landowner or even a big financial speculator. In why you know you can see why from their perspective these policies might be uh, in their interest. Uh, number two, if you're a big um, agri-food company, uh, you have an interest in uh, you know climate washing your activities. Uh, so from their perspective, the fact that you know they're putting aside a bit of land and they can present this as oh you know we're we're reducing our overall emissions by creating these uh, these carbon sinks. That from a P, you know, PR perspective, uh, especially these days, is very useful. And the same goes for non-agricultural um, industries who also have an interest in, um, in buying up as many carbon credits as possible. So what, what carbon farming means is that not only, um, you know, um, um, what, what 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 EU and governments telling uh, telling farmers is you know this is going to be uh, very profitable for you because you're going to be able to then sell these carbon credits. So when you have a carbon sink, then you can uh, if you can quantify how much carbon you're storing. The idea is that you create you know you can then emit credits which others can buy. Who's interested in buying carbon credits? Well, big polluters. So if you're a big energy intensive Industry, uh, say you know, you're an oil company, yeah, you know, and you uh, 
And in a number of countries, such as the EU, you have um, emission limits to respect, uh, you know, what are called cap and trade systems or emission, emissions trading systems, uh, which means that in order to, you know, you have to offset your emissions and you offset your emissions by buying carbon credits. Uh, so the more carbon credits are available, the better it is, uh, it is for you. Um, it pushes uh, the prices of those uh, credits down, which means it's cheaper for you to buy carbon credits. Uh, and it also allows you to keep polluting uh, by saying, look, you know, I mean, I'm offsetting these emissions. Uh, so if all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, you have this surge of new agricultural carbon credits coming into the market, that's very beneficial for you because then you can buy up these credits and say, okay, you know, I don't need to change my industrial practices because I'm, I'm offsetting, you know, I'm, uh, I'm offsetting my emissions by buying all these carbon credits produced by these carbon sinks. Um, so you can see why there are a number of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, of sectors and, and actors in the economy that are uh, interested in going in, uh, in this direction. And of course, the end result will be greater concentration of farmland, um, greater, um, more so-called land grabbing, uh, more financial speculators coming into the land owning business, uh, to the, uh, at the expense of, uh, of small farmers. And this would happen, um, you know, in a context in which you're, you know, the EU, but this is a global phenomenon, but even the EU has not been exempt from this phenomenon of increased land concentration and land grabbing, uh, as it is already, I think, uh, um, I've actually got the uh, the exact numbers here. Uh, we already uh, face a serious problem of uh, land um, land grabbing in um, in Europe. So I think we uh, I'll give you the numbers. So these are actually from a few years back, um, and already uh, this was about five years ago. Three uh, percent of farms in the European Union control about fifty percent of the land, uh, while seventy six percent of farms control only eleven percent. Of the land, so land is already very, very concentrated in uh, in in the EU as it is. We would, in fact, uh, you know, need to reverse that trend. We would need break up the big farms. We would have to redistribute land uh, because what we want at the end of the day uh, is to preserve the the small family run um, farming model uh, uh, that has been Europe's strength. For, uh, for so long, these policies go in the exact opposite direction. Carbon farming will only accelerate this trend towards growing uh, concentration and kind of oligarchization of, uh, of land and of, uh, of farming. Um, and so, you know, of course, as you say, this raises the question of what is really driving, you know, the, these policies. Uh, um, and I think it's... Um, Looking for a single overarching factor would be a mistake, um, I think, because uh, you know different actors have different interests uh, first and foremost. So um, I think we should look at these policies as really the kind of the kind of policies that emerge at the intersection of power, class, technocracy, and ideology. So it's a mixture of all these things, and the European Union is a per is a perfect example of this. You have a highly uh, technocratic technocratic technocratized uh, elite uh, bureaucracy that, you know, is structurally uh, part 
from the real economy, from the everyday life of citizens, workers, producers, uh, and is very prone to capture uh, uh, from whatever happens to be the current thing. And of course, you know, the, the whole um, uh, climate issue is the big current thing. And so, of course, they tend to be uh, highly susceptible to capture uh, to these ideas. In part two, we talk about how these policies do not actually cut emissions, and even if they did, would still be bad and even dangerous. Visit www.patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley.